Welcome to The Projections Podcast, a dialogue about film and psychoanalysis hosted by me, Sarah Catherine Cleaver, and me, Mary Wilde. Just like Steve Martin in Grand Canyon, we feel that all life's riddles are answered in movies, and our first series aims to introduce you to our podcast through a discussion of cinematic representations of mental illness. For the next six episodes, we'll each pick a film and use them to explore the capacity of moving image to showcase the emotional and mental functioning of six different psychiatric diagnoses. Anxiety, depression, psychosis, narcissism, borderline personality disorder, and psychopathy. Film is a means to unlock the mysteries of the human mind. Subscribe and follow our cinematic adventures into the unconscious. Hello. Hello, Sarah. It's Hello, nice Sarah. to speak to you again. This is our first series. Yeah. It's a series on the representation of mental illness in cinema. Yeah. And we're going to do six episodes, each one on a different theme within that theme. Exactly. So this is anxiety. This is anxiety. And uh, every week we're going to choose, we're going to recommend one film to each other. So we have two films and we will discuss that within the theme. Exactly. Basically. And this week. So this week... Otto Preminger's Bunny Lake is Missing, 1965. Yeah. Yeah. And Alice Lowe's Revenge, 2017. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, it was shown in... Actually, you know what? It's 2016 because it was okay. in, it was in the London Film Festival in 2016. There you go. Um, but I believe it came out in in the theaters this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but its official release date is last year. Um, and do you think it's worth just before kind of entering the discussion and dialogue on the films themselves to really kind of break down the psychiatric definition of anxiety that's exactly what I was going to yeah. ask you to do because even I'm not sure I mean yeah I, myself I mean I should you know just as a kind of disclaimer say that I'm not a practitioner but I do have um, an academic background in uh, sort of psychology and uh, psychiatric di- diagnoses as well as psychoanalytic theory surrounding these definitions and for you know for Freud anxiety was the primary condition and he believed that actually all the other mental disorders originate in anxiety. And it's just a question of how the subject comes to cope with anxiety that other mental illnesses develop. Oh, so it's the perfect first episode. It is he really must the have first. intended that <laughs> eventually. <laughs> well, I mean, I, myself, um, I'm, I mean, I'm a faithful follower of Freud. Mm-hmm. And what, what I find fascinating in Freud is that he never claimed that there is a state, there is a non-anxious state. Like for Freud, a healthy disposition, uh, someone with, you know, a sort of, um, someone who aspires to have a healthy mental life will never actually be totally rid of anxiety. That's impossible because subjectivity uh, necessitates anxiety. That's just how it works. Um, It's just a question of how the person, the individual, is able to cope with that. Mm -hmm. And if they, you know, the the extreme cases like uh, extreme psychosis or psychopathy, um, and sort of criminal insanity, those are cases where the anxiety is just so extreme and has been managed so poorly that it sort of descends into this really uncontrollable state. But Freud always maintained that a normal, healthy, quote-unquote, individual is somebody who, you know, is able to function more or less productively in their relationships and their job and their work, but they'll always be neurotic. They'll always have some degree of anxiety. So he he had no illusions, you know, uh, of, of one day somehow curing someone and ridding them completely of anxiety. So anxiety, so anxiety is, is the a primary... Human condition. It's a human condition. Okay. And, and, and in fact, one of Freud's um, earliest... Um, collaborators, uh, he believed that, I believe it's Otto Rank, he believed that, um, you know, the, the, the event of birth is anxiety provoking. So you're like, <laughs> all of oh, us great. from birth, we're mm-hmm. anxious people, you know, because that moment is very traumatic. So um, anyway, so yeah, so it's a good place to start mm-hmm. in terms of the, the kind of landscape of mental pathology. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was completely blown away by your suggestion. I loved, I, I was completely glued to my computer screen uh, watching where I found a really good high def mm-hmm. print of it online. 
And oh yeah, just for anyone that wants to watch, it's uh, on Google Films or Google Movies or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, 2.49 bargain yeah and I think it's on YouTube as well as yeah. one of those copies that you can pay for yeah. which I've never done that before and I've yeah I've never I, done I that kind before. of don't trust it no. but that's not very nice because no. I've never tried it so maybe yeah. it works yeah yeah absolutely and you know and it was I was just telling you earlier that it was it, it struck me that um, the guy in the film who plays the brother He's the actor who was in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. And I completely missed that both times I've watched it. So he's very, obviously very immersed in this part. Absolutely, yeah. exactly. And he's he obviously is a talented enough actor that he can, you know, be fully in that role and not be attached to other performances. Mm-hmm. So it's great. It's a, it's a tribute to him, really, that he's so convincing. It's um, a weird film of, yeah. of uh, main main actors that are not incredibly famous. Exactly. And supporting actors that are mm. bonkers famous, like Laurence Olivier, Olivier and Noel Coward. Yeah. It's, oh, no, no it's Coward's great character is so Oh, my funny. God, he's so Freudian. He's just yeah. uh, a pit of perversions, and it's brilliant. <laughs> And by the way, before we go on, if you haven't seen Burning Lake is Missing, there are spoilers in this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's worth saying. So uh, now is the time to pause and go and watch Go and watch it all and come back. Yeah. And Prevent as well. You might as well watch both of them. So so should we do like a a synopsis? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So a quick quick synopsis of Burning Lake is Missing. It is a film about a mother and daughter, a single mother, and her, she drops her daughter off to her first day of school in England. They've come from America. Yeah. And there is a young man sort of helping them move house who you, you maybe first assumed to be the child's father and her husband, mm. but he's her brother. That's what I assumed, yeah. yeah. Which I, I don't know if I ever assumed that, and I, because mm. I can't remember a time when I didn't know that he was her brother. Oh, I But see. they are, the, I think what you're supposed to have is this sort of fall from grace of realising, of thinking that they're this sort of this very cinematic, young, attractive couple with a yeah. young, attractive daughter to realising that there's something a little bit off about their relationship. Mm. And um, she drops her daughter off at school and she's late, so she has to leave her in the first day room. Mm. And she goes off and asks someone to take to keep an eye on her. And when she goes back to school to pick her up at the end of the day, she's not there. And there's a, it's a hugely kind of chaotic situation yeah. and no one at the school seems to know what's going on. And the police get called, and over time, the other characters start to doubt the existence of this little girl. That's right. Because that that any evidence that she was ever there or ever anywhere has started to disappear. Yeah. So. Yeah, and 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 I have to say, like this, the, the sensation of anxiety that sort of created right from the start mm-hmm. and sustained for much of the film, right up until the last frame. It's really amazing. Like, it's just that high-pitched kind of feeling of dread. And the audience is always sort of, like, wondering what really is going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, you know, we kind of experience the uh, uncertainty of the events along with the main character, um, Bunny Lake's mother. She's Um, called Anne. She's called Anne, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And... um, it's just, I thought it was a really effective uh, technique, you know, to have this sort of feeling just sort of always bubbling up and it's, it, it just never lets up. And, um, and of course, at times there were moments where I thought, is she, is this all in Anne's mind and is she just a psychotic? Mm-hmm. But it's really only when we realize what's been going on that you realize that wow, no, this is a really successful representation of anxiety, actually. Like, it really is. In a lot of ways, it's it's very Hitchcockian. It is very Hitchcockian, and um, some film history. Yeah? It uh, gets compared to Psycho a lot because Mm. it had a similar advertising campaign. That's right. You weren't allowed into the film after it had started. Yeah. (laughs) And you weren't allowed to tell other people the ending. Yeah. And all that kind of thing. So it gets compared to Hitchcock a lot, but it's also, for me, Mm. very similar to other films being made at the time by Europeans in England. Mm. So it's really similar to Antonioni. It's really Polanski. similar to Polanski. Repulsion. I got a big repulsion it vibe from so me. It is so much like repulsion because it is that sort of swinging London but not really. It's swinging London that those characters aren't experiencing yeah. because they're so embroiled in a personal breakdown. Yeah. 
and and they're so yeah. conflicted. They're so conflicted, and they're so they're just so completely uh, cut off from yeah. the place. The party, from yeah. The party. And that's massive FOMO. Yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> and also, Premonitor doesn't get spoken about as great directors. I know, and he, and yet, and he's just great. He he's really brilliant. is. Did you ever see a film, uh, John Waters' film called Cecil B. Demented? I haven't seen it, but I know the. I know the. Premise. Yeah, because there's this hilarious scene where this doesn't give anything away from the film, but there is a scene where um, a bunch of, you know, art house film lovers, like cinephiles or like film freaks, you know, <laughs> like us, and they each revealed a tattoo that they've got of their favorite director. And the very first time I came across the name Otto Preminger is because one of the guys in that gang had Otto Preminger, I think, tattooed on his chest. And I remember seeing that and thinking, as a kid, I saw this film, I was maybe 12 or 13, I remember thinking, that's such a cool name, like, who's Otto Preminger? <laughs> and I had this kind of fantasy in my mind of who it might be, and then later I discovered that he made a film uh, starring Marilyn Monroe. Of course, and that's what you did your thesis that's on. I, yeah, yeah, I did my thesis on Marilyn, and, and she was in his film River of No Return, which is not a, gr I wouldn't say it's a great film, it's mm -hmm. not that memorable. Um, it's intriguing that they work together, but yes, this really is fantastic. This is this maybe is... one of the best of his. Oh my god! It's yeah, incredible. yeah. So, in your psychoanalytic yeah. uh, reading <laughs> yeah. of the film, what did you think? So, my whole view of it, watching it as a kind of family drama with obviously the brother and sister being very close, you know, maybe too close, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that. It seemed like a very un unconventional family setup. Um, there was that kind of proximity. Uh, it's, it all seemed a bit sort of insular and uh, like very codependent. Um, and when we first are introduced to Anne, it seems like there's some cues that are set up for us as, a, as viewers to interpret her as being quite vulnerable, as being, you know, um, sort of, unfamiliar with her surroundings she's just come into town mm -hmm. and she immediately calls her brother to help her when uh, her kid goes missing and he's sort of I think and I think it's a deliberate tactic which works very well because of the denouement he's sort of maybe framed or presented as being very much you know in control sort of uh, problem solving goal oriented you know, quite poised, like doesn't get hysterical, doesn't get emotional. Mm -hmm. And so he seems like the, maybe the more well-adjusted one. Mm -hmm. And yet all the time, uh, it's, it was always Anne who was sound of he mind. Is, is incredibly sound of mind. Yeah. He's the least, uh, who Freud would consider the biggest success. Absolutely. And it's odd that you say that because I remember the first time I watched it, mm -hmm. you know, really... I did interpret it that way, I interpret her as vulnerable. Yeah. But the interesting thing about the first time I watched it is I watched it and I just moved to Paris, mm. where I moved for a year to do a master's. Yeah. And I'd been in the country seven days, maybe. And I was experiencing culture shock. Mm -hmm. so, and I've, so I've always seen Bunny Like is Missing as a culture shock film. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, that whole thing of being in Paris and thinking that you're supposed to have this wonderful Parisian time, but you don't know your way around, you don't know what time they stop serving a lunch, and people get, keep getting angry with you because you want to be fed at a certain time. Paris are really strict about what times they'll feed you. <laughs> and, you know, just feeling like I wasn't living my best Parisian life. Mm. And then going in to see this film about this American in London, and everyone's weird and rude and mm. negative and complaining, and they <laughs> switch off the TV when her when her missing oh, yeah. daughter comes on the news, they switch it to the zombies. Yeah, the zombies. <laughs> so weird. There are so many ways in which this is a culture shock film or a film about being a foreigner in a strange mm. country. And that must have something to do with Otto Preminger, whom I yeah. assume emigrated to America. That's right. First. He was Austro-Hungarian filmmaker, you know, will have at some point experience you know experienced culture shock. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also think that, you know, in a way, anxiety is a culture shock emotion because anxiety is like the, the, it's a, it's a sort of signal from the unconscious that 
the surroundings uh, need to be viewed with caution and that something in your surrounding is unsafe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that kind. And the problem is how does the ego interpret those messages from the unconscious? You know, is everything um, a correct signal of fear, you know, impending fear? No. Um, when it becomes debilitating is when the unconscious is producing signals where actually you're fine, you're mm -hmm. safe, you don't need to feel panic. So it's it's sort of that imbalance. And I think, you're, you, you know, I like the way you've just put that, that it's this kind of taking this parable of culture shock in terms of someone emigrating to a new continent or new country and kind of seeing how those parallels work in the psyche, mm -hmm. you know, and in the inner world and how those outside influences actually are operating not that, dis you know, not that differently to internal mechanisms of your own mind or mental life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, that is why she's such a successful character. Yeah. In a way, because when I watched this the second time, yeah. obviously I got over my culture shock and I love Paris, but yeah. I watched this back in my own country at a very secure time. I did not experience her remotely as a vulnerable character. At all. No. Not even from the beginning. No, she, exactly. Once you know what once happens... Once you know who she is, she's not a vulnerable no, character she's, she's, she's amazing. She's amazing. She's someone who sticks to her gun. She doesn't mm -hmm. let herself be uh, dissuaded or deterred from the, ob the object of her goal. Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't get let herself get brainwashed. She just is super... Like, has so much courage in her conviction... And she stands up for herself, mm -hmm. come what may. She's really strong. And she's got a very good way of expressing her feelings yeah. as well. She cries at about three points in the film. Yeah. It's one point where, which I loved because I'm collecting, as you know, collecting yeah. um, images of women vomiting on screen <laughs> because I think it's got something to do with them not being listened to. Mm. And that's very much an example of that. No one's listening to her. So no there's that bit where she puts some bread in her mouth and immediately vomits it up in the sink. Yeah. Um, but she also says to the uh, superintendent at some point, are you giving me? Are you giving me bad news? And he mm. says, "Why do you say that?" And she says, "Well, you're being so nice to me. Mm. I don't understand. You haven't been nice to me at this point. You're being nice to me because you're about to give me bad news." That's right. So she is asking. She's asking him to translate his strange Englishness to her because she doesn't get it. Yeah. So she's really she's got this survival instinct of yeah. just asking questions. Yeah. Which no one else in the film really has. No. Everyone has their own little monologues apart from her. She's the only one that really communicates. Yeah. She's the only one who's really upfront. Yes. Whereas, you know, there's this lady who lives in the flat above the kindergarten or whatever. Oh my god. That's Can we all just do very, a run through all these characters? Who are the, because you know, this yeah. is a film as well of it's just a film of queerness. Yeah, you've got the single you've got the single mother. Yeah, who says that she was never particularly in love with her kid's father. It didn't bother her that she's not with him. Yeah. So she's already in sixties London. Yeah, an affront. You've got the incestuous brother who's yeah. harboring this fixation on her and has, spoiler, kidnapped her child in order yeah. to rid this obstacle between them. Yeah. You've got um, a sort of lascivious, yet somehow also homosexual landlord who yeah. lets himself into your house and talks about Marquis de Sade whips yeah. and oh, yeah, things God. like that. The skull? Says that he's got the skull of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah. It's really funny because he picks it up on the Caledonia Road I know. market. <laughs> Um, and there's a really great quote in there, actually. When I've got a bridge the... she might be interested in buying. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a really great moment when the, he's, the policemen are in his house and he's showing them all his whips. Mm. And they speak to the inspector about it. They say, yeah. I think he was a bit of a pervert. And this inspector goes, the inspector goes, oh, please, he works for the BBC. <laughs> which now which is now? such a funny joke. Oh and I wonder God. if then it was it was the same joke. I wonder if that was just written into that, the script from someone in the know. I know. That really left me with my jaw on the floor yeah. when I heard that. I was like, wow. I, and I, I, I was left wondering too, like, was there always a history of this uh, Maybe. Kind of thing? Maybe there is. Or just maybe it just that's just so also specific. from a being very, very intuitive or whoever wrote the script. We should that, was in, that was incredible. It was a good joke. Yeah. And then furthermore, you've got this definitely coded lesbian uh, schoolmistress. Yeah. Who lives upstairs. Who lives in the, what did Zizek call it? Um... So he's too, when he in the Pervert's Guide to Cinema when he says that the um, the 
attic is the sort of super ego and, right. the, and the ground floor is the ego and yeah the, the basement, basement is the is. yeah um <laughs> so she lives up in the super ego listening to recordings of children talking about their nightmares oh yeah and she's got this huge like this huge portrait of a naked woman of, of the woman that she opened the school with yeah. hanging above the bed that they obviously share yeah it's great and considering how taboo homosexuality and all kinds of sexuality that weren't yeah. just be, being married and having children yeah that film is just bursting yeah with alternative lifestyles yeah totally everywhere everywhere it's everywhere you go everywhere she goes she's confronted by men lecturing on her or saying comments or mm-hmm. and I think what you said about her having about culture shock being really much more in tune to the dangers of society. Mm-hmm. I think something about those European directors who came and captured Swinging London yeah. is they were in tune to the darkness Oh yeah, uh, that was behind all those sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. Or, and which was, a little, in a large part, women getting fucked over. Yeah. Women being told that they were on the pill and they could have sex with whoever they wanted, but actually they were still going to be judged, they were still going to be abandoned when yeah. they were pregnant. They were still, yeah. everything was going to be just as bad. So they weren't domestic allowed to... violence, all of that was still going to exactly. happen. Exactly, but yeah. they just weren't allowed to complain about it anymore, yeah, yeah. which I think is all the 60s ever Yeah, wanted. I know. It's so true. It's mm-hmm. and, it, and the fact that, you know, the zombies are so prevalent, like the imagery of that kind of music and signals from that era is, mm-hmm. is sort of permeating throughout the imagery. It's sort of always reminding you that there is that dark side, you know, that it's, it's not all like um, sort of pure happiness and pure bliss. There's something about it that also kind of in, sort of brings in this, uh, you know, really complex set of circumstances for people who are trying to find their bearings in this rapidly changing times. Um, and the brother is, is, is really fascinating to me in that context because he is presented as this kind of like supposedly very um, trustworthy source or, mm-hmm. you know, someone that we can rely upon for a measure of reality or whatever. And so when we start to realize that actually he's a psychotic and he is trapped in this kind of delusional world that he and his sisters, he and his sister are still living as children almost, mm-hmm. and that uh, he's desperately jealous of 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 her of, of Anne's daughter, um, driving a wedge between them. I mean, it's very, it's all very Oedipal and it un- unresolved family dynamics. It is very dynamics. much what people in the sixties thought mental illness was. Yeah, you know. Which is, I think that's a very 60s thing, yeah. sort of, in, incest is a very 60s film thing, yeah. I think. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, especially the last 15 minutes of this film, yeah. it goes completely bonkers. Yeah. And is a very unexpected, but quite brilliant. Yeah. Just, I loved, fantastic. I loved it. I didn't see any of that coming. Mm-hmm, me neither. I, I was convinced, but, but towards the end, like, when they visit that doll... The doll, the doll repair shop. Yeah, which was also incredible. Oh, Apparently, that's a that, that a was real a real place. museum. Yeah, yeah, like on in Hammersmith or something. Yeah, I read that and um, and and it's just this kind of yeah, it's fascinating to see this kind of space with all these toys, mm-hmm. um, in disrepair, and they're all sort of stacked and arranged and displayed everything together and. And when she finally does find Bunny's doll to prove that Bunny always did exist, um, the brother sets it alight or something. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He sets fire to it with the oil lamp. That's right. And there's a really great line just before that where she says to the old man, I, um, I've, got to, I've got to have the doll to prove that I really have a daughter. Yeah. Or she doesn't get to say daughter, but she sort of gets cut off. And the whole film is actually about her attempting to prove her legitimacy. Yeah. To have a daughter, that yeah. she's deserving enough to have a daughter. Yeah, because, because you yeah. know she's, she doesn't have a husband. She lives with her brother. And one she's... at one point, she refers to Benny as illegitimate. Yeah, she says. Yeah. yeah, she says that she's illegitimate. There's a bit where she says to the to the superintendent, "You must think I'm a terrible mother." Yeah. Who also, as a character, is brilliant. This kind yeah. of Olivier. This, yeah, this sort of. I don't know. You he's think so paternal. He's like, paternal, but he just—it seems like he is not taking her seriously. No. Until, but his journey towards taking her seriously is not 
empathetic. It's one of a philosophy. Yeah. It's not a it's not a journey where he believes her as a person. No. It's a journey where he just decides that it makes more sense to believe her. And he, and he say he saves the day in the end. Well, they both save the day. Yeah, and all the actions that lead up to that moment when she, you know they're sort of playing this twisted game. Yeah, and, and they both he's completely reverted to childhood. Yeah, he's completely regressed. Mm-hmm. He's in this kind of almost like a trance or something like this, you know, bizarre state where he's acting like a child, and he, he's also very malleable. Like she kind yes. of manipulates his state of being so childlike. And just on the verge of moments when he's about to commit violence against this poor little kid who is, it, it, it turns out she's been sedated mm-hmm. and, and tied up in the boot of his car. All day. All day. And she's such a cute kid, by the way. She like, is just that like, like, really straight face all the really time. Straight. She's a great little she's actor. Really good. Yeah, she's I wonder what story. she grew up to be. She's, she was adorable. She was actually quite doll-like. Yes, yeah, she like, was. Because she was so calm. She didn't really cry or react. She mm-hmm. was just a good little girl. Like she, she was adorable. I really liked her. And there was a moment where she, he was carrying her. And it was all very ominous. And he looked very scary. And the little girl was just like looking up at him. And her little face was so... She she did look scared. She mm-hmm. must she must have found that pretty terrifying. It's a really scary film in the last fifteen minutes. Yeah. That moment where she hides her in the greenhouse oh and starts climbing over the wall, and he stands up. In, I'm getting the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up thinking about it. He just stands up inside the greenhouse and taps oh, on the window. Oh my god, that. Oh. That's the kind of jump scare that I find that's, so... That's, that is that's a equal good jump. to the mirror scene of Revolution. Oh, totally. It's as scary. It's oh brilliant. yeah, it's brilliant. So unexpected. But it's just the way that, you know, even though he poses this serious threat, Mm -hmm. you know, he's already been shown to be capable of sedating a child, tying her up, putting her in the boot of a car, um, and he's ready to commit violence. He's already dug her grave. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's already, we know that he's a psychopath or he's a danger to, to the little girl. And yet, simultaneously... Anne, his sister, is able to kind of manipulate him by suggesting games. And I found that interesting, you know, mm-hmm. like how he kind of was just on the verge of these disgusting, awful acts. He suddenly snaps and he's back in child mode. And it just kind of made me realize that it's sort of, it's almost as if he's um, kind of engulfed in this id realm of Mm -hmm. just pure spontaneous functioning like no reason at all no reality principle just working on impulse you know just it's like the the realm of the id is uh instant gratification uh you know pleasure principle uh, no rules no direction really you know it's just kind of chaos Mm -hmm. and he was very chaotic and Ultimately, turn it turns out not at all sophisticated, not what he was portraying. Yes, and I think in a way that's also very psychoanalytic because Freud always said that the ego is not master of his own house. So we we might try and present to the world this really sophisticated, put together image, sort of very well adjusted and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but lurking beneath that surface is this kind of world of unpredictability. And how we can quite quickly revert to an earlier state of development. And it's interesting because that's really a world that she completely embraces. Yeah. And he tries to exactly. control over. That bit where Noel Coward's following her around and saying, oh, that African mask, it's a fertility symbol. And she says to him, I don't think that's my problem. Yeah. Which is this great way to, to yeah. respond to the guy who's sexually harassing you. And also, did you think it's interesting that the two chaotic scenes take place in gardens? The final scene is a garden, yeah, and the school is called the Little People's Garden yeah. or something like that. She says, "Who is it? Anna Massey? Anna Massey as well, who was in Peeping Tom, which yeah. is another one of those films, those shocking films from the sixties." Yeah, she says, "I don't let. She wouldn't want the police dragged into the Little People's Garden." Yeah, it's and it's this, you know, this symbol of this uh, space that people attempt to domesticate. And it, it can't be, it can't be contained, really. No. You can work at it around the clock, but it's still a wild space. It's a wild space, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. 
it's like that, you know, like the children playing their instruments, doing whatever they want, this kind of uncontrolled, uh, un, you know, sort of, in a way, unsupervised. Mm-hmm. And and so the police, of course, represent the law, order, you know, things being monitored, closely scrutinized, etc., etc. It's like, though, this, that is building up tensions between these different forces, these different agencies. Mm-hmm. I think in that way, it's really successfully conducted. It's amazing. And it's really only when you know, when the game gets out of control and that we have this guy who's going to transgress those kind of boundaries and ultimately commit harm on a defenseless kid, um, that Anne realizes that she does actually have to signal for help and she needs support and she needs the backing of, you know, the symbolic in a way, the, 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 the realm of order and in a way defense. Um, to try and come and impose some kind of uh, structure in what's going on, that she that she, she's the one, she's the mastermind behind the plan to um, scream at the top of her lungs mm-hmm. while he's pushing her on the swing. Oh, that scene blew I my mind. That scene does blow my mind. I just thought it was so sexual. You know, mm. them both screaming higher, higher, and just I just remember just thinking this is shocking. And, and she also actually, was like, "Oh God, remember? yeah, yeah." And so that's their kind of the consummation of their unhealthy oh, uh, wow. desire. But actually, now you said that, that's why she's screaming. Thank you for explaining that to me. Well, I thought because it's so I wasn't sure. Maybe so it is. Much, but it is. You're completely right because that's the only way she alerts them. That's the only way she finds to. Yeah, yeah, because that's the, because she's trapped there forever. Yeah. Like they're going to have to play in that garden forever yeah. until like one of them falls asleep. Yeah, because it's you know it just goes round in circles. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. No, I just thought of it. I just had dirty thoughts about it. But you know what? That re- that scene really was mesmerizing to watch. It's like insane. The, it just the, builds to it's it's literal insanity. It builds oh yeah, to such a climax. Such a climax, and it's just the way that the photography of it, like this kind of, it's not she's swinging and the camera is swinging. Mm-hmm. It's like it just creates like vertigo and like seasickness almost. My eyes were completely absorbed by that imagery, and I found it so bewitching and so transfixing. Like, I really felt like I had plunged into that world at that moment. And then suddenly, you know, finally, she is able to communicate the, the, the problem, and, and, and the law enforcement comes, comes in. So, yeah, like, I thought, I, I like the way that Preminger is, is kind of... Uh, negotiating these different uh, agencies, worlds, realms of the mind, mm-hmm. and how ultimately we realized that he was the one who who had actually lost touch with reality all along, and that her, her anxiety all along was justified. It was always a legitimate response to a destabilizing environment, mm-hmm. and, she, and she was right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I loved it. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. I was really happy to watch it again. I think I'm <laughs> going to tell more people about that film. It's not one that everyone knows, but it's definitely one that you should watch. Yeah. So from one mother to another. Yeah. Prevenge. Prevenge. Oh, my God. Uh, in short, a story of a woman who believes that her unborn child is telling her to kill people. Yeah. And it's got a really cute voice. Yeah. <laughs> Look at them out on the rain. <laughs> It's, it's a great script by Alice Lowe, who who directed it and stars it, in wrote it. Wrote it, directed and stars in it while she was actually pregnant. While she was actually pregnant in uh, Wales, I believe, in Cardiff. Oh, is that where it's yeah. where it is? Okay. And this is extraordinary. Alice Lowe is she comes from a kind of uh, she, she was a, she she performed a great deal at the Edinburgh Edinburgh Fringe Festival. She's a stand-up comedian. She's she's been in a few quite kind of alternative situation comedies she's worked with uh, lots of different uh, stand-up comedians to produce um show you know live shows live performances she actually uh is a is a very good friend of gareth tunley this is the ghoul the ghoul yeah this is one we're gonna have to watch at some point oh yeah definitely i've heard about it so much yeah because it is kind of fascinating, um, and it's kind of it's exciting to me to see this sort of up and coming set of British talent who are working so closely with kind of the realm of um, mental disorders, mental functioning represented on film. Because Gareth Tunley's film *The Ghoul* is sort of about depression and psychosis, 
and Alice Lowe um, was in a film called Sightseers. Oh, yeah, of course. Which was made by Ben Wheatley, who produced The Ghoul. So it's this kind of close-knit little, you know, group of performers, actors, directors, etc. And they're, they're all very much interested in this kind of, uh, you know, I guess the relationship between psychology, uh, the mind, the psyche, and how that is then featured on film. So it really excites me as someone who's interested in, you know, psychoanalysis and mm -hmm. cinema to see that kind of, the, these developments in British cinema. Um, and Alice Lowe is really fascinating to me. Um, so she was also in The Ghoul. It just bears mentioning that. She's one of the characters in that film. But in Prevenge... First of all, the fact that she made this film, and it, I think it was filmed over two weeks. It was, yeah. So it's amazing to me that they achieved that in such a short amount of time, that she herself was pregnant, and that it occurred to her to write and direct a story like this. And the whole structure of it is very interesting. The fact that she believes that her unborn child is sending her instructions to systematically track down and murder a group of people who, spoiler alert at this rate, um, they, the people that she is sort of targeting mm -hmm. all happen to be individuals who were on a group activity where they were rock climbing and her partner died because they decided as a group that they had to cut the cord cut the cord and let him go and let him go which is <laughs> so amazing like that's so poetic to me like that the way they were using that language mm -hmm. cutting the yeah, cord she's very aware of very the, aware of the psychoanalysis of her own films or it's, her own film yeah definitely and i love that i love how it's so unashamedly sort of targeting the fears and anxieties of an expecting mother mm -hmm. I mean I've never been pregnant and I don't myself don't envision having children so but um over time you sometimes do consider that and then you think you think about all the different factors that come into you know what it might be like to have a baby or to expect a baby etc and you know, I think I would find it very terrifying, you know, like, and I like the fact that herself, a woman who happens to be expecting, is exploring these anxieties in a film, mm -hmm. and kind it's of like amazing. having the midwife, all the scenes of the midwife the are midwife, so... The best scenes, they're fantastic. They're the, fantastic. The, those two women's chemistry is just brilliant. Yeah. They're also some of the only honest conversations in the film. Yeah. And I find this film difficult, I found this film difficult to read in terms of anxiety because I found it really hard to identify the source of the anxiety. Yeah. Because on one level it's motherhood, mm -hmm. but on another level it's, I'm not sure, there's something about, because as you get further and further towards the truth, there's something about rejection in there as well. Yeah. Because the final guy says to her, well he told me he was thinking about leaving Yeah. You. And is that maybe not what it is all along? It's not her baby's revenge. It's her own. It's her own attempt to silence everyone that knew that she was. That, I don't know that made, that she was undesirable exactly. or that she was unloved. Yeah, and maybe also kind of eliminating that knowledge. Just if it, yeah, if it doesn't exist, then it's not. Yeah, it's not out happening. of sight, out of mind. Yes, and the fact that um, you know. It's it's sort of like the whole cutting loose thing. Mm -hmm. Like he was going to cut her loose. He was. You know? Um, and there is, though she does murder women, there is a very yeah. anti-male sentiment oh, yeah. throughout the whole film. All of the men are grotesque cartoon yeah. characters. Oh, yeah. A little bit too much for me, actually, at some point. I know. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And one, one guy definitely gets his comeuppance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very symbolically. Very symbolically. Um, yeah. And the fact that his mother's in the apartment I know, at the time is just brilliant. And she's so lovely to the mother as yeah, well. She's she so is. sweet and to the mother. She gives her a little kiss yeah. on the head. And she gives all of her victims little kisses. Yeah. Very sort of maternal mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, they're maternal kisses. They're not, they're, they're giving a little kiss on the forehead. What I find fascinating also is just the fact that. Um, you know, the anxiety, the way that it's sort of, in a way, personified, because oftentimes, you know, you, you get you get this sort of, um, as an anxiety sufferer, I 
get told, oh, it's just in your head. Mm. You know, it's just... Well, yeah, that's where it's just it, in it your is, head. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Oh, oh, you mean it's it's only in my head? Oh, then I was worrying for nothing. You know? <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> you know, but, but there's this kind of like, you know, sort of vernacular of um, people telling you that your mental illness is just inside you you mm. know so well, for her it's very much it's, affecting other people now exactly it's sort of yeah it's the revenge exactly. of the it is the revenge of the hurt woman it is you know if i'm hurt everyone else is going to be too and, and it, there's something really yeah. heroic about that yeah i think it's well you know not in real life but in cinema but also just the fact that it's sort of like um uh giving that representation of uh what that voice feels like feels like inside in, very much inside you know that it's 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 like another being there with you all the time and there, there's this great scene where she's participating in a yoga class or something yeah. and the instructor is telling everyone to kind of uh you know let the mind quiet down and stuff and of course her imagery is very violent like mm -hmm. her mind's um the images that that she conjures up they're all extremely brutalized and violent because she's remembering the brutal act she's committed and um, and I think at one point she she repeats to herself, "It's inside me. It's inside me. It's inside me." And it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of if we go on this kind of knowledge that um, this guy that she was with, who maybe wasn't being honest with her, maybe he had negative intentions all along, or or he wasn't very genuine with her, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, he le he left behind something. You know, he got under her skin. Literally, like she became pregnant. Mm. Yes. You know? Yeah, and, that's a good interpretation. And it's like his memory, which he might have been a really toxic person, but he he left behind this trace of himself mm -hmm. that she's now having to carry around. And with time, it's growing and growing all the time. It's kicking her, you know? It's this little... Now it's even a human being, you know, that, that, that has a mind of its own. It's taking over her. It's dominating her. There's this great moment when the midwife says, you know, that's it now. You've lost control of yourself. It's all about the baby now. Mm -hmm. You know, the baby comes first. And in that kind of, let's say, in that kind of scenario where a woman has been brutally hurt by someone, they're long gone but it's not out of sight, out of mind. They've left something behind and she's just now harboring. She's harboring the memory of something quite brutal who's now possessing her completely and she's committing brutal acts. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that quite interesting, you know, kind of representing it in that way. And I think it's quite fearless because, because in our society, motherhood is this sacrosanct subject that we're not allowed to... Oh, you're not allowed to criticize. No. You're not allowed to, and you're apparently exempt from the accusation of selfishness. As yeah. As a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of it's the most selfish point in your life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the other thing I thought about yeah. her in that baby's voice, mm. and which actually really fits in with your interpretation is what if you don't interpret them as brutal acts? What if you interpret them as act acts of creativity? Mm. Because they are very creative. Yeah. Her slayings. And they're very funny, actually. They're very funny. Um, so is it not just her artistic voice, her selfish voice? Yeah. Her, it's her voice. It's her voice. Actually. Yeah. And I sort of thought it was some maybe something to do with being an artist and a mother and mm. those two things versus each other or murderer versus artist or... Yeah, you know, all of those ideas, and it fits That's in with right. what you're saying because a lot of people do turn their trauma into art. Yeah, and you know, it's, so it's got inside her, and she's it's coming out of her as something else. I like that. I love that actually because, and I think maybe the, there's a a great deal of support for that interpretation in the film when she's watching this old film herself. Yes. What yes. is that? I can't remember it offhand, but it's a silent film about... It's about a woman who has been wronged. Wow. Actually, it's about a woman who is in some form of relationship, maybe with a man who's married and doesn't tell her or something like that. It's like one of those very moralistic silent films, and I think she dies and she comes back as this vengeful spirit. Mm. Um, so that's... it's. There's definitely... It's ostensibly a film about motherhood, but it's not. It's a film about... <laughs> Getting over yeah a betrayal or a, yeah a, or some form of if, if having been <laughs> abused or hurt yeah basically, and when the baby comes out, 
it's no longer interesting to her because it's no longer that force for no. force of um it wasn't that, that baby telling her those things. It, it was, was it was herself. It was herself. And that's kind of what she ultimately decides to do. She decides to finish that up. Yeah, because in the final scene, mm-hmm. where she goes and finds ultimately the last one that yeah. she was targeting that she couldn't quite, you know, murder, the instructor. Um, and she 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 kind of takes so on the sweet. pose. Yeah. yeah. She takes on, she kind of emulates this character she saw in the film, which mm-hmm. she really identified with. Yeah. And uh, you realize that, yeah, the, the, the object or rather the motivation behind her actions were not this baby who maybe she was almost interpreting as a kind of demonic force invading her body. Actually, the baby was just a cute little thing and very kind of innocuous and harmless. Mm-hmm. She had just been displacing her own capabilities for um, enacting... Uh, the violence of her emotions mm-hmm. onto this baby, and when the baby was out, she still had that she still impulse. Had those feelings. Yeah. She still had those feelings. And she still had that creative, if you want to call yeah. it, creative, destructive, same thing. Yeah, but, yeah. I think it treats anxiety in that kind of way. That well, first of all, it is very Freudian in the sense that Freud talking about anxiety coming, you know, being present right from birth. You know, so kind of linking anxiety as that primal state of subjectivity, tying that in with the state of pregnancy and expecting a baby, etc. Um, but also weaving that birth anxiety into this kind of slasher mm-hmm. film where there's that desire, for, you know, even as you're creating life, you're killing everyone around you, you know? I love that kind of contrast. I know that apparently... Some people have been offended at presenting pregnancy in that way. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. That surprises and disappoints me. When, I know, when it premiered at the London Film Festival, um, I, I was at a lot of screenings in that festival. I didn't go to that one, but I heard people referring to Prevenge and saying like, oh, well, you know, that's taking it too far, man. You know, and of course it was men saying that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, they were saying that, oh, you know, they don't really, uh, they love horror films, but they don't want to see a pregnant woman doing that. Well, no one wants to see a pregnant woman doing anything. That's exactly. part of the anxiety of the film. You know, when she, when the, exactly. cu- the couple in the next hotel room start having sex and the baby says, well, it's like you're not even here. But that's, you know, that is how society treats pregnant women, you know, because yeah. once you've impregnated them, then, you know, that you've reached your goal with them that's the whole point yeah so the only ones worth noticing it's all about the baby now yeah yeah exactly it's also I think interesting because in a lot of horror films women are you know sometimes targeted as Mm -hmm. victims and the fact that she's the perpetrator of the violence um it is kind of you know that unconscious dichotomy of pitting that against um, the, the capacity for life creation, mm. you know? And it taps into that kind of fear, that unconscious fear of um, the, the sort of mandate of creativity also having to do with destruction. Well, that's been a threat that mothers have been uttering Absolutely. for years. I gave you life, I can take it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also something about that I that really frustrated me about the film, but I understand why she chose to do it. Mm-hmm. But I'm really, you know, I've been reading, I've been looking at films a lot and looking at ways that women communicate their identities. She strips herself of identity yeah. in this film. And I wonder if that's a little oh, yeah. bit of a nod to the way that pregnancy does strip you yeah. of your identity as a woman. Because she doesn't have anything around her. There's no clues as to who she is, apart from no. maybe her like weird parka that she wears. But the, most of the scene, she's in some form of disguise. She's got a different name. She's in someone else's space. She lives in this hotel room, yeah. this anonymous space, where she sometimes somehow has a weird collection of things that yeah. sort of make her that do make her who she who she is. But she doesn't appear to have a home. She doesn't appear to have anything. That's right. Her identity is sort of... There's no clues. There's no clues. And even... We find out that her name is Ruth. Mm -hmm. But her baby keeps telling her, be ruthless. Yes. Yeah, she does. Be ruthless. That's so clever that they played on those words. And she's literally ruthless in the sense that Ruth is gone. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. She is gone. She's completely... 
she's she's Anonymous. less than Ruth, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's it's amazing to me that totally, you know, speaks to your point about the loss of identity, the subjugation. Um, but I think this is more a criticism of the way our societies treat pregnant women because there are also, like, anthropologically and throughout history, um, evidence of pregnant women being looked at as goddesses. Mm-hmm. You know, like, actual mir- miraculous uh, otherworldly beings that can create life, like these kind of shamans. And and that's not the case now. Like, you know, like, right now in these kind of Western societies, um, and certainly, you know, in other places in the world where very religious, you know, heavily religious uh, environments of all different faiths, it's almost very taboo, you mm-hmm. know? Like, everything connected with the state of uh, the woman in that condition. And it's 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 spoken about in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, your condition. Yes. But, yeah, a and lot of people have a real trouble saying yeah. what she is, that she's yeah. pregnant. Yeah. Which I noticed, which really feeds into um, Bunny Lake is Missing. Yeah. This is two approaches to unconventional motherhood 40 years apart. But the superintendent says to her, did you ever think about... I can't remember exactly the words he has, but he skirts around what he's asking her. Oh, yeah. And she says, do you mean, did I think about having an abortion? And no one, you know, no one in these films can say the words. No. All all the signifiers that are connected to the woman's body and her reproductive capabilities and everything to do with that is abject. Mm -hmm. It's like... It's so taboo, and it's it. That's a real object of horror for them. Yes, there are two. There are always double layers in these films. There yeah. are these women's anxieties about the world, yeah. which are always reasonable, and then there is the world's anxieties about these women. Yeah, and that's kind of where the real element of horror apparently came for a lot of of viewers of this film, which surprises me. It's not what I realized. I mean, to be fair, it was a couple of conversations that I overheard during the festival. Mm-hmm. You know, where people were saying that you know. Slashers are cool, but, you know, pregnant women, too far. It's like, well, says who, you mm. know? Like, this is your issue, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good note to end on. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Hi again. Thank you so much for listening to the Projections podcast. We really, really hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to all of your friends or rate and review us on iTunes because that way we get more listeners. Yeah, and just spread the word and follow us also on our socials. You can find us on Instagram at Projections Podcast, as well as uh, look up our Facebook page, Projections Podcast. Um, You can also find us on our individual Twitter accounts. Um, Mine is uh, at Psychstar, P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R, and Sarah's is... Sarah K. Cleaver. Perfect. Um, yeah, and also feel free to email us too. Uh, we're projectionspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Any film recommendations you have that could um, sort of work with the categories we've been discussing uh, or just any feedback, really, if you have complaints or just anything, we'd love to hear from you. If you have complaints, try and put them in a polite, nice way. Please. <laughs> uh, and then finally, we do have a Patreon. If you would like to support us with small monthly donations, we would really appreciate that. We, You can find us on Patreon just under Projections Podcast. It would help us to continue to put the time in to research and record the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.